1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Ah, hello, everybody. Welcome again to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. My name is Jeanette Cockroft, and I am the host of this channel. Today, I will be talking with Shelley fraser Mickle, the author of White House Wild Child
1: please welcome Shelly Fraser-Mickle to the program. Welcome, Shelly. Oh, thank you. It's an honor and privilege to be here. I've been looking so forward to this, to talk to a political scientist and a historian. Uh, this is going to be so much fun. Oh, they're, they're always fun. Um, why, don't, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah. uh, When I was five years old, my grandmother used to come and spend long visits with us because she lost her husband in the flu epidemic of uh, 1918. So she was a lonely widow, but they gave her the job of uh, making me behave. And my nickname was the uh, Screaming Mimi, which is the name of a World War II bomb. (laughs) And so my grandmother would... um, take me for her to have a nap and she would read to me and as she read I was fascinated by this process of what I call the magic of silent language before I could read myself and uh, I think she was a little bit worried I might be the first woman in our family to go to prison so she started taking me to Sunday school and there I heard stories that were older even than my grandmother. So I decided there must be something in stories that we needed. They were like air or water or a good purse. So I decided I was going to be a writer early on at the age of five. And then uh, I know you kind of want me to talk about my education a little bit because I had made that decision. And I grew up in a little cotton town in Arkansas. And it's the most lovely. It was paradise. It was not pretty. It was one cotton field after another and dust everywhere. But the most amazing, loving people are there. And I had a childhood very much like Huckleberry Finn, And I was loved and there were a group of us kids who all had horses and we named ourselves a posse and we would parade ourselves down the main street and admire our images in the plate glass windows. And then we would tie up our horses and go in the grocery store and get candy and bubble gum and walk out and say, charge our parents, charge it to our parents. So what a lovely childhood I had. Of course we lived with the Jim Crow laws, which, uh, prevented me having many friends that i wish today i could have had those experiences but other than that it was pretty much um huckleberry finn childhood so when it came to going to college because i definitely was passion bitten by to be a writer i knew about william faulkner and i heard that he had won the nobel prize for literature So I decided to go to the University of Mississippi because he lived next to the campus, and I wrote him a letter. Now, to put this in um, perspective, you have to remember how bold we are when we're 18. We think that we can do anything, and we're fearless and sometimes rude. So anyway, I wrote him a letter, and I told him I was coming to the University of Mississippi, and if he was ever close by, come over and introduce himself. And then I heard he knew a thing or two about writing, and I was coming there to learn from him. So very shortly before I arrived on campus, he died, and I took it personally. I thought, gosh, he's gone to great lengths to avoid me. But anyway, I uh, never lost my passion to write, and, uh, but I also wanted to experience everything in life that you can. Uh, One of my great thrills in writing this book about the White House wild child was that T.R. Roosevelt um, always said he took a bite out of life and let it dribble down his chin. And I very much uh, felt that way growing up. I wanted to experience everything. So I married, I had two children, and I wrote on the side. And uh, finally, in 1989, after working years and years on a novel that grew in length to about 600 Pages uh, it made its way into the hands of Lewis Rubin, who was the founder of Algonquin, and he wrote me a letter and he said uh, somebody gave me this book and parts of it are the most god awful thing I've ever read, but then other parts I start laughing and I can't stop. And he said here's a check for three hundred dollars if you will work with me, we might get something that's publishable. So more or less, I mean, what a great lucky strike for me because I was not connected in New York or any of these publishing or literary society, you know, groups. I knew Um, nobody. I was working and I'm married to a brain surgeon and that training was long and hard and lonely. So I was raising kids. So anyway, um, my first novel came out. The Queen of October It's still in print. And because Lewis was behind it all, it was a New York Times bestseller. Um, notable book and did really well well i've been a novelist for 50 years because you probably get in the idea i'm pretty old at this point so to publish a novel today you have to be cool and if i was ever cool it's rubbed off so about four or five years ago i decided to uh, because i can't quit writing i just i still want to write as long as my mind holds up so I wanted to start writing nonfiction. And I was, dr- I was really attracted to narrative history, is what we call it. And there's a difference between, I guess our listeners, it won't hurt to review this a little bit. Historical fiction is a novel. It's made up. It's a plot, but it's based on historical happenings. However, I wanted to write something that was really real. I wrote a historical novel, and I said, now it's time to move into the real stuff and learn how to document it. Well, meanwhile, I was a commentator. Uh, They called me up here. I was doing a little storytelling on uh, University of Florida NPR, and uh, National NPR in Washington, D.C. called me up and said, we think you're pretty funny, and uh, we like your storytelling. Would you do some for us? So, about six years, I worked for uh, morning edition out of uh, Washington, D.C. So, when I started writing, deciding I was going to do nonfiction, I was terrified because I can make up anything. So, I knew <laughs> when I started writing his narrative history, I had to be really careful. So, I overdid it, I more or less documented every word I wrote and every sentence even every word of dialogue but I, i'm kind of wedded to that now i've trained myself because out of sheer fear so i'll tell you how i got the first idea uh, my husband and i were batting around ideas of what could i take on as my 1st nonfiction, project and he trained under joe murray at uh, the harvard peter brigham hospital Joe Murray eventually was awarded the uh, Nobel Prize for performing the first kidney transplant successfully. So my husband said, well, you know, that story about Joe would make a pretty good book. So I researched it. I thought, surely uh, David McCullough or Walter Isaacson has written about this because the first kidney transplant is considered one of the greatest contributions to humankind in the 20th century. And all of the surgeons involved and the researchers had written their memoirs, but it was like going to grand rounds. Uh, I made a C in college zoology. So I told myself, if I can digest this complicated medical history and pass it on to me to understand and to my reader, I feel like I would have done something of value, especially because it involves the discovery of the immune system because the greatest uh, barrier to the kidney transplant was overcoming rejection. So I researched that. I, I found uh, Joe Murray's children and called them up and asked them if I could write this biography and uh, history. And they didn't quite know who I was, but they said, okay, give it a try. <laughs> so I did, and it's been a great success. And I'll tell my readers, Borrowing the Life is the name of the book. And it begins with a horribly burned pilot in which they created a Hail Mary attempt to save his life and borrowed skin from someone who's not related. And that uh, generated the idea of why not uh, borrow, transplant organs to save someone's life. So um, in fact, last year I did an interview with this uh, new network, New Books Network with Victoria Phillips in England. And we talked about that book. If any of your listeners want to delve into that, it should be there somewhere. So on to um, how I got on to Alice Roosevelt and the Roosevelt family and the Wild White House wild child. In my research for borrowing life, I discovered that there were a lot of fictional characters in uh, books that suffered from kidney disease. Charles Dickens had a lot of them. They called it uh, Dropsy, the collection of fluid. And he had a lot of uh, characters who were suffering from kidney disease. And then also the uh, historical figures. And one of those was uh, Alice Roosevelt's mother, uh, Alice Hathaway Lee died when little alice was only two days old and she died of wright's disease which was diagnosed only when she went into labor so it was a total shock and alice hathaway lee died in t.r roosevelt's arms and to make it even worse his mother died on the same day in the same house the roosevelt mansion near uh central park in manhattan and T.R., I'll, I'll call him either Teddy or T.R. throughout this, but what I'm talking about is uh, T.R. became our president first. He's not to be confused with F.D.R., uh, Franklin Roosevelt. So Teddy Roosevelt was so devastated that um, he, whenever he looked at little Alice, uh, he couldn't look her in the eye or say her name. And over time... Alice interpreted his silence as disapproval. So when I discovered this story, I thought, well, this would be very important to analyze this effect of grief on a child. And I did go to graduate school for a while in psychiatric social work. And I worked on a actually on a Vanderbilt ward for emotionally disturbed children. It's where I met my husband. He was not in the ward, but he, he was in medical school there. So, anyway, uh, I had gone to a lot of staffings. And so I had a background in child development. And that really fascinated me to take this story of little Alice. Um, really, she wanted to get to her father all of her life to get back at him for not loving her the way she needed. And I think there's a lot here um, to talk about with father's uh, effects on a daughter. And um, I'm suggesting in these interviews that um, I've been to several book clubs and always in the midst of them, husbands of boyfriends will tiptoe in and steal our snacks. And we always wish that they would stay. <laughs> Because, uh, you know, a co-ed discussion uh, of a book, it's fun. And this is a book that will appeal. Everybody thinks of Teddy as the rough writer, but I can tell you a lot about him that was more than a rough writer because uh, I got so um, fascinated with him. I spent too much time researching him and my editor had to pull me back. In fact, we cut out like 100 pages of the book. It costs so much today to publish a book. So I'm really honored and fortunate that, you know, this book got picked up. And even more than that, that I have the privilege of bringing back these extraordinary figures of history for us today to behold and just to be um, fascinated with. And so I want to tell you a little bit about Alice and how she got her wild child name. Absolutely. (laughs) I am ready. Yeah. So she was uh, so flabbergasted at uh, her father's silence and not being able to really get his attention. He had five other children. She was the first, of course. But I want to paint for you the scene of her arriving by train in Washington, D.C., when she moved into the White House to, to come to move into the White House. And T.R. Roosevelt um, ascended to the presidency because William McKinley was assassinated. And this is one of the echoes, I want to emphasize this, in this book when you read it you will see how much of this history we are living today with because uh, it's not that it recycles itself, it's that it gives us guidance to where we can understand what's happening and perhaps make better decisions when we know what's gone before. So the minute that um TR was sent the message that McKinley had died, and you know, you can't leave that power vacuum longer than an hour or whatever. They rushed him to take the oath of office. And the first thing he burst out with was they they were not shooting a man, they were shooting government. And that's exactly what's going on today. So it's important that people read this book to understand uh, today a lot about our politics today so he um after that started carrying his own pistol and of course he had secret service uh protection but it's not like today and he took upon himself to protect himself so he went on the train he picked up alice at her aunt's house and went to um washington dc to move into the white house so alice gets off the train She's 17 years old. She's wearing a wine dress with a bouquet of violets in her waistband. And as she moves, those violets nod and sway. And her budding sexuality, people cannot look away from. She was devastatingly gorgeous, young, uh, vibrant, and ripe. <laughs> and so in those days, the flashbulbs were complicated they had powder or whatever but they started going off and within a very short time she became the most photographed woman in the world not just in america but in the world and so i equate her in this book to being the first princess diana and later our obsession with jackie kennedy women walked on to the political stage yet alice's time women's names were not to appear in the newspaper except when they announced their marriage or were already dead and here was Alice who could generate more newspaper print than even her father so today I'm also saying that I see this uh, relating it to, to today to understand all the um, parallels I see uh, Alice being like the uh, a first Taylor Swift in the fact that she was an influencer and when Alice would go out on the street women would uh circle her and cheer her and applaud in that sense she was like the first Gloria Steinem but the absolutely fascinating part is that Alice was pathologically shy and she never spoke in public she only gave like one speech Toward the end of her life, but she never took the microphone and spoke. So everything she did.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer.
1: All the attention she drew was physical. Okay, so here we go. She moves into the White House, and in her purse, she starts carrying a copy of the Constitution, a dagger, and a little green snake named Emily Spinach. And um, What's she up with not- the snake? yeah isn't this amazing she did it to outrage people you know it was a way she was always sticking her finger in someone's eye so that was what she was uh dedicated to doing and then at the garden parties when her father would invite the congressman she would take uh emily spinach out of her purse and wear the little snake like jewelry and get the the gross kick out of watching the congressman's eyes followed the little snake as it explored the folds in her dress uh, she was tantalizing but it says so much about uh women and what where we are and what we have to do to grab just a little bit of power in our culture and a lot of that's coming back today too so um uh, the me too movement was way before alice but it had uh, it echoes into that time too so anyway there's so much here for a book club and readers to discuss so um as Alice aged she transferred that uh, outrageousness into uh making well what we would call today tweets she had quick things to say about people and all the people just couldn't get enough of her you know one of her most famous sayings is If you can't say anything nice about anyone, come sit beside me. So she became a socialite and the whole country was just taken with her. And I hate to say it, but in analyzing this personality in her later years, she became mean. She became uh, mean like uh, some of the people we have in our current culture who like to take people down completely by what they say. And she became that. But anyway, there are a couple of things that I would like to suggest to the readers that you look for. Uh, Not only that she became a role model for young women about the culture's boundaries and pushing those because um, she couldn't vote until she was 36 years old. I find that just stunning. But after the 19th Amendment was passed, 126 million women voted in the 1920 presidential election. And uh, the other thing that I suggest for people to discuss when they read this book is I kind of want to open up a national conversation about fathers and daughters. We talk a lot about fathers and sons, but we've never really had a serious conversation of the effect that fathers have on daughters. Now I've ra- I've raised one of each and I could tell my daughter that she was smart and beautiful, but she wouldn't believe me. It needed to come from a man and it needed to come first from a father. And so um, that's a great way to uh, look at this book to bring up that conversation because I've had a couple of uh, interview hosts who have been men who are still dating. And one of them really latched on to this theme and it was wonderful because he said I, he could tell almost immediately when he was dating a young woman who'd had a very slim relationship if at all with a father because they were weak and they had l- lack of confidence and like that old country western song they were looking for love in all the wrong places so it's a great conversation to have to realize if we want to raise strong women to be strong mothers and uh, contribute to our society we need to pay attention to what fathers do for them and of course a lot of the fathers leave the household and single mothers raise the daughters and we talk a lot about single mothers raising sons but there's a whole issue there with what um, fathers need to do for their daughters so I would suggest that for readers. And then also what drew me to this book almost more than anything else is that Alice changed. She, in her middle age and early age of her 70s, she was mean. She, was, she, she just played on the dark side and she always was taking someone down. She never matured. She was stuck. As I say, she was frozen in childhood from the moment that she felt like she could not get her father's complete attention and love. And of course he did, but it wasn't enough for her. And it was an unusual circumstance in the fact that no one ever talked about her mother. No one told her that she was beautiful like her mother or smart like her mother. You know, we need a lodestar, some role model, especially if you lost one through death. So what drew me to this book and really wanted me to do it was that the age of 73, Alice changed completely. And let me work up to that a little bit. Okay, everybody in America thought she would find a husband who would tame her. <laughs> and they were eager to see who that was going to be. So she fell in love with Nick Longworth, who was the Speaker of the House. You know, there's a Longworth building in Washington, D.C., and you'll hear it mentioned on the news every once in a while. But it's so much fun to see how these um, uh, historical figures layer into other historical figures and these relationships. It's fun. And so um, she fell in love with Nick Longworth and he played around on her. And of course, Alice played around on him because no no one ever got anything past alice so um a- a- nick was a bad alcoholic and a philanderer and so alice went off and had an affair with william burrah b-o-r-a-h who was very renowned in the senate and they thought that he was presidential material and she thought that either nick or he would get her back to the white house through marriage she always wanted to go back she was in love with who she had been in the White House, the first daughter in that power, being close to power. So she had a daughter with Bill Burrah. And to stick it to Nick, she said, I'm going to name this child Deborah and spell it D-O-B-O-R-H. with Bill Burrah's name in part of the Deborah. It was not known while... Alice was alive but today it is accepted that she had this you can't say out of wedlock but she didn't have a child with her husband so Nick died of alcoholism and (laughs) true to form uh, Alice uh, put his body on a train and rode back to Cincinnati to bury it with one of his mistresses she (laughs) every boundary there was she would break which makes it fun, but also sad, you know, but it gives, I don't know, you learn about a lot about your society and your own life compared to what went on in the early 1900s. So anyway, um, Alice's daughter, she overshadowed her. One thing you need to understand that's even fun to look at once you know a little bit about TR and who he was, and I can talk about that later. He was fierce. He was a genius. And Alice inherited that same personality. She was fierce. She was an exhibitionist like he was, uh, but she was pathologically shy. And uh, she's the one who said when T.R. gave away Eleanor Roosevelt to Franklin Roosevelt in their wedding, uh, Alice said about her father, he wants to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. And she did, too so as a mother she botched the job terribly because she smothered her daughter and that daughter became the most famous baby in the world just like alice had been everybody hung on that child and nick took the baby to the uh, congress on the weekends and everybody there loved her she was like the pet of the uh, house of representatives and People would come to the gallery in the um, chamber and point to Alice and the baby and say, there's Nick. There's the one that. <laughs> but people were obsessed with Alice. It's hard to understand how much, how famous she was in at one time and how extraordinary it is that today few people know who she was. So it's been yeah. my privilege to be to bring these people back. So. When this this child grew up, being smothered and overshadowed by poor Alice, uh, she died of a drug overdose in her late twenties. And she, by then, she had a child. She had married and had a child, and that broke Alice when her daughter died. It woke her up, and she uh, became a. She took that grandchild and raised her. And she raised her with the sacrifice and unconditional love that she felt she had never had. So to me, the beauty of this book is to see someone change so completely because it gives hope for all of us and everybody else is that you can have an experience that opens you up to see yourself and your mistakes and you can correct them. Well, now, Alice lived to age 96. (laughs) <laughs> so um uh, it was a, a amazing moment to me to see her realize that she could have been a better person and a better mother and she did do that so i don't want to give away my book i really want people to learn it uh, to read it and learn from it and uh, be fascinated with these characters but if we have time i'm going to tell you about bammy <laughs> Actually-
0: Actually, we're just about out of time.
1: Oh, okay. Well, I'll let the readers learn it on their own because Mammy is one of the most fascinating human beings in history.
0: I I think we've taken quite enough of your time. This has been an incredible conversation. I am so grateful for your time and, and energy to discuss this
1: with us. And before I let you go, can you give us an idea of what you might be working on next? Well, I'm spending all my time right now on Alice because I really want to get this book out and get people talking about reading. I think that reading is uh, good for our mental health. I call it the um, magic of silent language, but spending those few minutes with a mind in print from a storyteller is uh, almost like meditation. So I'm encouraging people to read this book. It's not long. It's 250 pages. It's a quick read. and a lot of history is stuffed into it. <laughs> I talked really fast today, which is unusual for me. And I appreciate your tolerating my Arkansas accent.
0: Not at all. Thank you so much, Shelley, for your time.
1: Happy reading.